Welcome to the Biology of Trauma podcast, the show that provides professionals with the knowledge and tools for effective science-based solutions for the trauma healing journey. I am your host, Dr. Amy, and I've done the hard work so you can stop your endless searching, have a roadmap for your own work, and be able to help others more powerfully. Welcome to this episode of the Biology of Trauma podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Amy. Today, we are diving deep into an essential question that many of us, especially those in the trauma or medical fields, grapple with. How does unresolved trauma manifest in our bodies? And how can we understand this connection in order to have a clear path forward? Today, I am honored to have Dr. Gaber Mate join me for this discussion. He has been a leader in seeing the body expressing stress and trauma. As a family medicine physician who also did palliative care and addiction medicine, he saw things and began to write about them. He had me with his books, When the Body Says No and Hungry Ghosts. They were huge influences for my life personally and professionally at that time. So how does unresolved trauma manifest in our bodies? How does this understanding guide us to know where to start? When there are physical health symptoms involved, Hint, hint, that is what you will learn about how unresolved trauma manifests physically in our body. We have to be careful about starting in the right way. This is true whether this is for where you are to start with your patients or clients or where you are to start for yourself. Here is what you will learn in this podcast, how virtually every chronic condition you ever deal with has a traumatic template to it, has a trauma footprint behind it. The role of dysregulation versus genetics and disease, stress and helplessness on a cellular level, the interplay of copper excess and relational trauma in postpartum depression, unresolved trauma creates a disconnect with yourself and your body, where to start to repair the disconnect, the role of somatic and parts work for addressing unresolved trauma in the body, How long does it take to start to see results? The role of community and your changing your world, your environment for your healing journey. And then illness as an attempt on the body's part to wake you up to who you really are and what your needs really are. I am very excited for this episode. So let's jump right in with Gaber Mate on physical health symptoms, the body and unresolved trauma. I'm sure that in your training, as in my training, trauma awareness was completely lacking. And and yet when you go out and practice, and if your eyes are open, if your ears are perked, you realize that virtually every chronic condition you ever deal with has got a traumatic template to it. I'm talking about autoimmune disease, I'm talking about addiction, I'm talking about mental health conditions, malignancy, and what's frustrating, perhaps, for you, uh, as for me, is these are not just insights. The science is there. In other words, the science of mind-body unity and the relationship of trauma and to physical and mental pathology, or what we call pathology, is so well established in the scientific literature. And yet, this is science that's utterly ignored in medical training and in medical practice. So people go to physicians, and they're seen as the bears of individual biological organs 
each with its own pathology and the connections between that person's life, that person's existence, that person's relationship to the world and fundamentally their relationship to themselves is completely missing, which is why you and I get to learn so much and do this work. And with that, since you and I have already talked about my book, and we'll, it'll come up during this conversation, but I'd like to, to turn it to your work, if that's okay. And the first thing I want to ask you, Amy, is I look at your credentials and, and all the training that you've had, uh, general surgery and functional medicine and preventive medicine and public health and addiction medicine. First of all, how is there time in one lifetime to do all that training? But secondly, and most importantly, actually, what is it that impelled you to explore all those fields? That's very unusual. What sent you to all these different um, realms of medicine? What was driving you so much? I started out with a very conventional medical pathway. And that I assumed that's where I was going to be because that's all I knew, Gobber. Like, that's all I knew. I'm assuming yeah. it might have been the same for you that when you go into medicine, even before you get to medical school, like the path is already laid out for you. You already yeah. know that you're going to pick a specialty, a field, but then you go through medical school, residency, and then you work in a hospital or a clinic, and this is what you do the rest of your life. And so yeah. for me, looking back, there were two events that completely changed my course of my career. And the first was that coming out of my master's in biochemistry and before jumping into third year of medicine or medical school, I decided to become a foster parent. And oh. four-year-old Miguel landed in my home at that time. And because of what the social workers told me would be his trajectory, if he were not adopted, given his history, given his behaviors, given the extent to which he had already failed several home placements in the past, I still made the decision as a third-year medical student to adopt him. And it was with the intention of giving him the best chances to have a different life than what I saw unfolding before him given yeah. what I knew from other children who had similar uh, degrees to which their trauma was showing up in their life. Yeah. And in the process, I'm going to, I won't hide anything. Like it was very hard and his behaviors at that time were so extreme that most people wouldn't believe me when I tell them that he tried to kill me. He would pull out knives. He would talk about killing me. He would destroy things all around him in his rages. And my home became someplace where I did not feel safe. And this is what fueled me. This is what drove me to trying to figure out what was going on. Why was mm -hmm. he doing this? Help me understand so that I knew how to help him. But before I could help him, I knew that I needed to understand it. And none yeah. of my training in medical school prepared me for this. None of it. And of course, the solution at that time, and probably still is just let's medicate him. I'm like, oh, but that's not the real problem. <laughs> and so that's what drove me initially. Then in mm. 2014, I developed severe fatigue. And I was now at the end of my third year of general surgery residency, transplant surgery rotation, no less, Scover. And my body gave out. And well, I no, sorry to interrupt. One of my previous books is called "When the Body Says No," and literally, your body was saying no. 
And that's when I found that book of yours. And that's when you started to become a heavy influence in my life. And this is what happened was I started to see my symptoms as expressions of trauma, as expressions of my body telling me something that I had never been willing to listen to before. Yeah. And this is what then changed my whole personal journey, because up until now, it had all been about Miguel and he was finally in a good place. But now this became about me. And what I first had to learn from your book primarily was that, wait a second, these symptoms that I'm having, because it really wasn't just the fatigue, it was anxiety and depression. And my autoimmune markers were high. And I had all of these other things going on that I found out. And I realized, wait a second, these are all conditions that I know from my studies now are related to adverse childhood experiences. But yet, Gabra, that was not my story, or at least so I thought. Like Mm -hmm. I didn't have the background that Miguel had. So why would my body have the same expression as someone who had a very hard childhood? In my mind, again, it didn't make sense. And I need to understand things. I want to understand things. So that's where that became the second event that fueled my desire to then go into functional medicine and trauma therapy trainings and somatic experiencing training, trying to figure out then the pieces for myself, my personal journey not having any idea that it would ever turn into the work that I do. That wasn't the intention at that time. It was just, how do Mm. I heal myself? Right. Now, once you, and certainly for me, it wasn't just my clinical work. It was also my work having to do with my own stuff. But once you start doing this work, then you find that it's impossible not to see it. Like when you see your clients, your patients, and it doesn't matter what they come in with, if it's a chronic condition, it's almost in every case, there's some trauma underneath it and you just begin to see it and you can't help but see it. And we were taught, I was taught that most chronic conditions that run in families are genetic. Yeah. Yet I started seeing a very different picture. I started to see it as no, like this is their nervous system dysregulation. This is trauma being passed on through generations. This isn't a genetic thing. These are learned ways of, of going through life, of living life, of not dealing with trauma. That's what this, these symptoms are being passed on. And you're right. I've come to the same conclusion that all chronic health issues are driven by a dysregulated nervous system. Yeah. Talk more about that. Talk more about the nervous system. I know you studied polyvagal theory and and in your 21 week course, you incorporate it. Why are we putting such an important emphasis on the nervous system as, as I do as well, but you do it more explicitly than I do. What is that? What is that all about for you? This was part of my healing journey where I could feel the differences in the, what I called like the states of my nervous system. And I could yeah. start to tell, wait a second, I'm in trauma physiology right now. I'm in this heaviness. I'm in this low state. And then I could feel myself being in a high energy and a stress state where I'm feeling like I'm a a hamster on a wheel. So I started to be able to feel that, wait a second, like there are different operating systems of my body. And that's when I started to literally map out, okay, this is what seems to be happening. And so when I then came across Dr. Steve Porges work and the polyvagal theory, it made perfect sense to what I was already experiencing in my body. And I could tell that when my body was going into that shutdown place, when my body was saying no, 
that I would develop all of these symptoms. My gut would be off. My sleep would be off. I would have worse of the autoimmune symptoms, the inflammation. And so I could tell early on that my nervous system was driving my health symptoms. And this is exactly what other people are finding as well. So it makes me think of Kimberly and Kimberly is one that came through the 21 day journey. And she was one that she found she had been through different doctors, therapists, counselors for 10 years and finally found that, wait a second, what my body responds to the most is calming my nervous system down. Yeah. That is what makes the biggest difference. It's not genetics. (laughs) It took her 10 years of not feeling well to figure this out. And with the tools that she had for the nervous system, like it gives her hope that like I can do something different. I can have a better health because I have the tools for my nervous system. So let me make a couple of points here. First of all, what you say about genetics, there are a few diseases, very rare, that are purely genetics driven. If you have the gene, you'll have the disease. In my family, there's muscular dystrophy. Those people that inherit the gene, they'll have the disease. Huntington's Korea, if you have the gene, 99% of the time, you're going to have the disease. But most diseases are not like that. Those diseases are very rare. There are some diseases where there's some genetic predisposition, like in some cases of breast cancer. There are breast cancer genes, ovarian cancer genes, but out of 100 women with breast cancer, only seven have the gene. 93 do not. So in most cases, even if genes are present, they don't determine the disease. And in most cases, in the vast majority of medical conditions, there's no significant genetic contribution at all. None, not in terms of determining disease. And I talk about this in the myth of normal, and it's one of these myths that addiction is genetic and depression is genetic and autoimmune disease. No, they're not. They're not. There's very little proof for that. In fact, lots of proof to the opposite. When it comes to the nervous system, people need to understand that the relation, that these systems don't separate, don't function in separation from each other. It's not like we have an immune system and a nervous system and a gut and a and a cardiovascular system and an emotional system. These are not separate systems. They're all one part of one unit. They're all connected, not even connected. They're one. So that when you talk about calming the nervous system, it's, I think you're talking about calming the nervous system that has been dysregulated by a lifetime of trauma and stress. Isn't that right? It's not just a nervous system in isolation. No, it's the body system. It's a whole body living, like you say, in this place of stress and trauma. And what that has created is a lifetime of living in fear, a lifetime of feeling insecure and all of the cellular responses to living in fear because It's not just our emotions that we get guarded and and we brace and we try to protect ourselves. Like that's happening on a cellular level too. And then that's what becomes our health symptoms. So that we're looking at really having this baseline insecurity and fear showing up on a cellular level for our health. When it comes to cells, you talk about the mitochondria. Now, I know what those are. I've studied them in medical school, but really I didn't keep up on the research. What is it? What is your focus on these little things called mitochondria? 
in, in my studies, they've become pivotal to the understanding of trauma, which is fascinating okay. because that's not at all what I learned in medical school, but they well, are you- me like at the core of trauma because trauma is an energy problem. If okay. we had more energy, if we had more resources, we would be able to respond to the problems and stress in our life and not have it become something where we go into a state of helplessness and powerlessness. And what gives us energy is our mitochondria. So we have mitochondria in all of our cells. There can be up to 30 million, I think, in each cell. And yet in the nervous system, in the nerve cells, which are what communicate our stress response and our trauma response, there are 300 million mitochondria in each neuron. Stop. So the so the nervous system, nerve cells, neurons have more mitochondria than other cells in the body. Is that right? That is right. So they are much oh. more sensitive to energy problems and anything that will decrease the mitochondria's ability to keep us fueled and powered with energy or ATP in the body. So relate that to somebody like so that is this condition that most doctors don't understand and some of them still don't even believe exists chronic fatigue syndrome and often people come in with chronic fatigue and the doctors tell them it's all in your heads you're, you're suggesting that there's actually something happening in the in in the and i i know the system exists i, I know the condition exists and it's totally related to people's stresses and traumas what's happening on the cellular level then is you're saying that something's happening in their nerve cells is that what you're saying Exactly. Something is happening that's affecting the nerve cells ability to respond to stress. And when we can't respond to stress, we will go into that place of helplessness. We'll go into that trauma physiology, that trauma response in the body. And so then we get to look at then what's affecting my mitochondria, which is fascinating because that has never been a question that has come up in trauma work before, right? Like typically trauma therapy, like you go talk to a therapist, you go talk to a counselor, you don't talk yeah. about your mitochondria. <laughs> and so yeah. here we come along and I'm like, no, we there's this whole biology of trauma. And we have to look at those things that are affecting our mitochondria. Copper, for example, copper excess is one of those factors that actually is associated with chronic fatigue syndrome. Why? Mm-hmm. Because it's toxicity to the neurons, to the nerve cells, and it increases their baseline stress. So they're not able to handle emotional stress. They have higher levels of adrenaline, which then if they're not able to metabolize that, it pushes the body into a trauma response. So there's this whole theology that actually will drive a trauma response. So how do you get a copper excess? You can get a copper excess for a couple of reasons. One, you have a zinc deficiency. So there's a copper to zinc ratio that is a healthy one. It's around 1.2, 1.3. And If the zinc is low, which is one of the most common nutrient deficiencies in those with a mood or mental health challenge, if that Mm. zinc is low, then you end up having a copper excess, which is a neurotoxin for the nervous system, for the mitochondria. You can also have inability to clear out copper well. And so this is where your genetics can influence this and your ability to clear out copper. And this is what actually drives a lot of the postpartum depression because the copper is related to estrogen. And so as the estrogen goes up, the baby needs copper. So during pregnancy, copper levels are going up. Mom's protected. Baby gets all that copper because it is needed for their nervous system. But then once baby's delivered, mom then, if she has an inability to clear out copper, all of this copper is sitting in her system and she gets postpartum depression. 
or anxiety or postpartum psychosis because she's not able to clear out that copper. So copper actually is one of the common things that we need to look for in someone's biology if they have this not only chronic fatigue, but this pattern of continuing to go into and get stuck in a trauma response with the health symptoms that come with that. So two questions. One is, first of all, do you do that through blood tests or what kind of measurements do you take of that? Yes. For the copper, you can do blood tests and it's, you also need to measure the protein that's bound to copper in the blood, because that would be the other reason for excess copper is if it's bound to protein, then it's protected. But if it's just free copper, that's when it's can be a toxic effect if it's in that higher ratio. So you need to test for copper, for zinc, and the protein that's called ceruloplasm. This awareness that you have, this is news to me. Is that through your functional medicine training or how did you get this? Yes, this is through the functional medicine training and also some nutritional trainings that I've taken for addiction medicine. And then, okay. yeah, right. have, have added all this in. Which brings me to my next question or statement question. So postpartum depression, that's something um, I used to deliver a lot of babies uh, as a family physician. So I saw a lot of postpartum depression. And um, <clears throat> to tell you the truth, I never occurred to me to look at copper and you know, it just wasn't part of my awareness. But, and here's my question, in every case of postpartum depression, number one, the woman had a childhood trauma or stress significant, which the birth of the baby is triggered. Number one, number two, the depression wasn't just in the woman, it was in the relationship. The, the woman was lacking sufficient support in her environment. We diagnose the woman as having this so-called disease, but in fact, what it represents is a whole manifestation of her entire life and her current relationship with her spouse and the environment. That's got nothing to do with copper. It's just got to do with human relationships and the nervous system and, and emotional dynamics. How do you bring it all together? And this is where we go back to our conversation of the body is one. We can't yeah. separate the effect of relationship stress and trauma on yeah. the response of our tissues. And so when we have those kinds of stress and trauma, it makes our body more susceptible to toxins, not only copper, but a lot of other toxins as well. So that toxins and trauma, like they always run together. And you can ask mm. the question, the chicken and egg question, which came first? Did the trauma come first? And that caused the absorption, the invitation for yeah. toxins, and then the inability to clear those out, maybe, or did the toxins come first? And they created the environment for one to not make the decisions about getting into a healthy relationship or not being able to process trauma because it feels too overwhelming to connect with a body that's irritable from the neurotoxin effect of the copper. So for me, this is where it's, it's all integrated. And that's what I found from my healing journey is that I couldn't just focus on one thing. I couldn't just do, for example, the somatic work and learn how to connect with my body. I couldn't just do parts work, which has yeah. been another essential piece for me. I also had to bring in the biology piece because they're all affecting the nervous system all at the mm -hmm. same time. And so when I can integrate those pieces, I saw that I was able to experience what I call just more expansion in my healing. Whereas before I just, I would come up to a wall. And I would get blocked and my body would shut down. And I didn't know why until I started integrating these pieces and seeing, oh, like they're all affecting the nervous system. So of course I have to integrate all of them in, in a healing journey. 
Certainly, my wife went through a significant postnatal depression with our third child. And as we talk about this in the myth of normal, and our relationship really was the issue. I was not a supportive husband. I was a workaholic doctor. And I was dutiful, but emotionally, I wasn't there. And so my bias is to look at those interpersonal, relational, and internal dynamics. I didn't think about the biology of it. Now you're making me rethink it now. But certainly, I think the point remains that you can't look at anything in isolation. The human body is not an isolated organ. Our heart is uh, or organism. The heart is not an isolated organ. It's all one. You mentioned this expansion. And I know in your three-week course, I think your third week is about expansion. Do you want to run through that, those three weeks? Because I think the first one is about safety which is about we've been that's the polyvagal getting the nervous system to in a state of safety which is a safe which is a state of replenishment and regeneration what are the, what are these three weeks that you guide people through like you like my lessons learned have so much come from the mistakes that i've made on my own healing journey so yeah. i didn't I did not do this, what I call the essential sequence. I did not do this for myself because I didn't know this at that time. At that time, I was doing the best that I could with the information that I had. And as I started piecing together the different components, that's what I landed on. And you talk about the biology piece and where does this fit in? As much as I am still a medical physician, and so I am very interested in how the biology affects our nervous system and can hold us back or hold us stuck. Yeah. I found that's not where I need to start people. I actually need to start people with this connection with their body and creating yeah. different experiences yeah. for themselves first. And even with that, Gobber, I started to see changes in their biology just from doing those exercises. Yeah. So that's where I was like, wait a second, something's happening here. And that's what affirmed for me that this is the work that also changes our biology. We can't separate it. And it's an essential yeah. piece for me. It's become the foundational piece and the foundational journey. So I start everyone with creating, teaching them for themselves how to do this, how to create a felt sense of safety for their body. Now, I know that sounds simple. And yet for anyone who is like me, sounds has been like you in the past where we love to live in our heads. We love to work. We love to study. We love to think, but actually feel that for me was a very hard step. Some, somehow, like that journey between my head and my body was the farthest journey I've ever had to take. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's the shortest and the hardest one, isn't it? Shortest and, uh, and the hardest. It, here's what we need to make, make a point about trauma. Is that the essence of trauma is a disconnection from yourself. In the first chapter of the myth of normal, I, I do go through a deep explanation of what trauma is. And trauma is not what happens to you. And your teacher and my teacher and friend, Peter Levine, he's the one that pointed this out. And, and that, that trauma is not the external event that happens to you. It's what it's your body's response to what happens to you. And when, when people are being stressed and traumatized and they're young children, and there's no one there to hold you in that pain or that stress, the trauma, there's a wisdom in the trauma, is that you disconnect from yourself because it's, too, it's unbearable to stay connected. That disconnection then creates all kinds of problems later on, but it comes along originally as an adaptive mechanism. 
So the trauma is both a wound, that's what the word actually means, is a wound. But the wound is, so trauma is not whether you're abused or your parents don't know how to love you or your parents are troubled or addicted or violent with each other. Those are not the traumas. Those are the traumatic events that evoke the trauma. But the trauma is what happens inside you and begins with that very disconnection. Which is the good news, because if the trauma is what happened to you when you were a kid, or what happened to your son when he was very small, or what happened to me when as, a, as an infant, if that was the trauma, there's nothing we can do about it, because it happened. But if the trauma is what happens inside of us, those disconnections, that can be repaired. And that's what your program is all about. It's about repairing the disconnect. That's right. And that's where I have found I need to start everyone, even before I start running lab tests and checking Mm -hmm. copper, because when I can help shift and help that connection happen, it already starts to change their biology. And so I'm sure this has been the same for you, where many people come and ask me like, how do I know that I've had trauma? And my question to them is, are you disconnected from yourself? Yeah. Are you up in your head? Are you up in your head? (laughs) Do you not actually want to be in your body? Do you not want to fill your body? Does that feel overwhelming to you? Because I'm looking for present day patterns, not some event that happened in the past. Are you disconnected from yourself? And I think both you and I in our approach to healing trauma, the past is important perhaps in understanding things, but dealing with the past doesn't help you. You have to deal with what's happening in the present in your body right now. That's where the, in your body, mind, what's happening right now. That's where the healing actually is. And I'm sure you've seen this. I, if I could share screen, I'm not going to take the trouble to share the screen right now. Don't even know how to do it exactly. But I could show you a picture of a woman that I met in London in 2019, 2018, five years ago now. I gave a lecture. She came to my lecture on the book, When the Body Says No. This is when I was still writing The Myth of Normal. She sent me some photographs. She has this rash on her face like a butterfly. What's the diagnosis? Clearly lupus. That is a diagnosis of lupus. Systemic lupus. Her hands are, her fingers are white as this cup. The fingers. Raynaud's phenomena. The blood supply has been completely cut off to her fingers. She's diagnosed with lupus, an autoimmune disease. She's told that she'll be on medication for the rest of her life. And there's nothing they can do about the disease itself. They can just control the symptoms. Three years later, I got these photographs. Four years later, another set of photographs. Her first is, his face is totally clear. And her fingers are pink as yours and mine. And no medications. Because she dealt with the trauma and she dealt with the mind-body unity and she reconnected with her body and she learned how to say no. And her relationship to herself has completely changed. And you must have seen this as well so often. That's also frustrating here, Amy, is that we're not just talking theory here. We're talking about people that we're not promising magic cures or panaceas, but in so many cases whether it's multiple sclerosis or lupus or arthritis or depression or addiction or anything, people can do so much better 
if they only are guided to deal with the traumas and to become their true selves in the present moment, which is, I think, what your work is all about. So your first week is all about, and you must have seen these same kind of results, haven't you? Yes, which for me as a medical physician trained in this workup, diagnosis, treat, trained yeah. in that model, the results have shocked me. And just like you, it's given me so much more hope and understanding of the body and how the body actually works. And as in the 21 foundational journey, I, we have these days where people have open shares. So they're able to share what is happening to them just as a result of the work that they're doing and connecting with the body, creating these different experiences themselves. And people started telling me, sharing with the whole group, like I got off my pain medication that I've been on for decades. I my emotional eating pattern just disappeared and I didn't even do anything consciously. Like it just, it, I didn't want to overeat anymore. Or another lady got off of her thyroid medication for hypothyroidism that she'd had since her early twenties. And she had an alcoholic mother. So all these things people were sharing. And I was like, is, could this be true? So I started studying it. Of course, like yeah. a good researcher, right? Like I want numbers. <laughs> I want to know yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I start, I started giving them a survey before and after just to be able to measure this, to make sure, are they not just saying these things to make me feel good, right? Like I, w- I want to know for sure this is real. Mm-hmm. And I still do this. So everyone who takes the 21 day journey, I still do this study for them. They'll fill it out. And what I, what the numbers that we're getting back are 26% decrease in daily physical pain. This is in 21 days. 21 days. Now, do you have, do you do a long-term follow-up? So yes, there is the next three-week journey, which is the parts work. So we integrate parts work on top of somatic work for the next three weeks. So it really is yeah. a six-week foundational journey. And then we come in and there's an ongoing, ongoing community where we meet three times a week for a, a, a time to connect with our body. And again, it's a guided exercise so that you're guided through that process and that's our maintenance. And then I offer the biology courses for those who really want to dig into their biology, but safely opening up, safely learning how to connect with the body. And I yeah. use that word safely intentionally, because that was one of the mistakes that I made is for myself. Like I jumped in too much, too fast, too deep, mm-hmm. too fast. And I actually caused a lot of flare-ups in my health symptoms at the time. Well, Peter, Peter, Levine, to... Peter Levine talks about titrating our intervention, yes. doesn't Yes. I had to learn that. (laughs) I had to learn that the hard way (laughs) because of course, being, being the personality that I had coming out of my childhood, I was like, I'm going to push myself all the way. More pain is better. And I, one of the lessons that I learned was actually the more that I push my body, the slower it goes in the trauma healing process. Yeah. So they have the, the decrease in daily physical pain, but their digestive system. So most people with trauma have some form of digestive symptoms because of the vagus nerve and people were experiencing a 28% decrease in their digestive issues, 28% decrease in sleep issues. By the way, again, this is where it gets uh, frustrating. There's so much research connecting childhood trauma, for example, and irritable bowel syndrome or inflammatory bowel disease. But you go to the average gastroenterologist, they haven't got a clue. So people never hear about it. No, it's very siloed. The digestive system is over here with the GI doctors. They don't yeah. even talk about the nervous system. They don't even talk about the immune system. They don't talk about anything else other than 
the digestive system and, and that siloed view, they're yeah. missing the big picture. Yeah. Missing the big picture, I think, is the the big theme. And I think the work that you and I try to do, and certainly your 21-week program, is all about taking in the big picture, isn't it? It is. It's taking that big picture and saying, this is what it means to have a healthy nervous system. This is what it means to actually be in our body and not be in our head. And here's the way to do that in a way that feels safe, that feels manageable so that other people aren't jumping in too much, too fast and being able to titrate the process and taking what has been unmanageable and making it manageable. Now that doesn't mean comfortable, (laughs) right? That means that there's still a level of discomfort of connecting with this body that I don't like. I haven't liked my body. I feel that it's betrayed me. I feel that it's let me down, whatever the words are that people tell me, and I'm sure they tell you. Well, sorry, it's the other way around. Your body's, right. trying, your body's trying to wake you up is what it's trying to do. Yeah. And in the myth of normal, I have a chapter of the disease as teacher. I, I don't recommend people getting sick as a way of learning, but my God, those people that actually can um, take the illness, not simply as a misfortune and an enemy, but as an attempt on the body's part to wake you up to who you really are and what your needs really are so it's the body didn't betray them they betrayed their bodies and they didn't mean to betray their bodies but as a trauma response they disconnected and not the body saying please connect with me pay attention to me all over again i have one more statement question for you this work that you're describing is all within the body and within the individual and yet, as both both you and I know, so much of people's stresses and traumas happen in a context. And there's a reason, for example, why 80% of autoimmune disease happens to women. And I think that has to do with the role that women are culturated to undertake in this particular society of suppressing themselves and serving the needs of others. And those people are the ones who typically get autoimmune disease. Now, do you address those issues in your program? Because I do. I'm not saying, ah, oh, I do it. You don't do it. I'm asking, do you? Because the program, as you described it, is internally related and, and individually related. But I'm saying for health, ultimately, you also have to make a change in your relationships to the world and what you take on and what you don't take on. So what do you say? What do you got to say about that? This is one of the scariest parts for people is... Yeah okay, I can swallow this idea that I need to connect with myself, but connect with other people. Oh, like now, now you're talking about something that has been overwhelming. And I, I don't want to do that. I want to do this work in isolation. I want to this, just this be something that I can do on my own, or it's just me and my therapist. And I'm not really forming a strong relationship with them. And it's a therapy relationship anyway. So what I have found is that people come to me And the more high functioning they are, the more they want to just do it. Just, can I just work with you directly? I only want to work with you. (laughs) And what I tell them is that if you want the best results, I need you to do this in community. If you want the best results, I need you to do this in community. Now that community needs to be safe. And that's probably what you've never experienced. And part of what you need to experience that you even know that's possible. And when they experience that, the opening up that happens 
again, like they get the best results when they do it in a sense of a safe community. So we do this as a group. We do this as a community, this 21 day journey, foundational journey. We do it as a group. And we also have very clear, I call them five agreements that we have from day one so that we keep it a safe group for people. One of those aspects, Gobber, is this idea that we can't go into the past to change what happened. And so why are we going to bring up events from the past or the stories from the past? What we do and what we learn how to do with each other is to stay in the present moment and share the experiences of, as I do this guided somatic exercise, what do I notice changing in my body? What do I notice in my stomach? What do I notice in my shoulders? What do I notice in the present moment? And most people have never done that. They've never even learned how to be present with someone else. And so it's a powerful shift that happens, not only because of the individual work that they do and the exercises that they learn that empowers them as individuals, that in the moment I have tools, but this idea of being able to experience a safe community, possibly for the first time ever. For sure, community. Fine, what that means. We we know this, that a a well-led community it raises the energy level of, of, of everybody in, in a very positive way. That's all really great. And it's an essential part of much healing. And in my compassionate inquiry courses, there's a lot of communal work as well. And yet at the same time, I'm getting at something else here. In the myth of normal, I quote one study, just as one example, they looked at 2000 women over a 10 year period. Those women that were unhappily married and didn't talk about their feelings were four times as likely to die as those women who are unhappy married who did express their emotions. What I'm talking about here is somebody takes your program or mine and they make changes within themselves and the relationship to themselves, but they also need to change their relationship to the world. In other words, they can't keep suppressing themselves. Like somebody does your program, but they still suppress themselves in their marriage. They don't learn how to say they don't know, or they take on too much of their partner's stuff, or they, in other words, we have to guide people not just to be kinder to themselves internally, but to manifest that kindness to themselves in their relationship in the world. And they have to learn how to be more assertive, listen to their bodies, say no, and sometimes make some difficult choices about situations that may not be good for them. Do your do your students get to that point? We do that in that second week, the second part. So the second three week course of the foundational okay. journey where we okay. do it the parts work. Okay. And we bring in these parts of what are the different parts of me? I have a part of me that stays silent. I have a part of me that is a people pleaser. I have a right. part of me that puts everyone else's <laughs> needs above my own. And then right. we get to bring in curiosity for those parts, but then work with those parts to change those patterns. Because you're exactly right. As we develop this relationship with ourselves, and perhaps for the first time, we're actually listening to what we need. Then we need to move into being able to express that to other people, not just hearing that for ourselves. And that process, in my experience, requires working with the different parts of us that will be afraid to break a pattern that they've always had. That's always kept them safe. Yeah. So I integrate somatic and parts work. I know that's a little unusual to integrate those two, but I connect with the parts 
with different body sensations. So that as we think about what about having that conversation with that friend or that partner or your child, whatever the the conflict, whatever the toxic relationship is, as you even just think about having that conversation, where does it show up in your body? Oh, like I get the twist in my gut or I get a lump in my throat. I feel my chest constricting. Okay. And then we work with that body sensation and we work with the part behind that body sensation to get curious about why, what, what is it afraid of? What has been its story? And what What does it it need? What was it trying to protect? What's it trying to protect? Yeah. And what does it need to do something different moving forward so that we don't continue living the same way that we've always lived? What does it need to do something different? And it's going to need, I come back to the essential sequence. It's going to need a felt sense of safety. How can I provide a felt sense of safety for that part to be able to do something different? How can I come in and write a felt sense of support? I've got you. I've got your back. We can do this. We can make this change. And then there is the expansion. The expansion is doing something different than what we've done before. It's interesting with the expansion. When I work with people in compassion inquiry, we watch the body very much. And when somebody connects with themselves, there's an immediate expansion. They take a deeper breath. Their their throat will open up. Their the shoulder. Literally, the body expands. It 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 is all about expansion. Uh, ultimately, I think for me and I think for you as well, there's a chapter in the myth of normal called attachment and authenticity. And what it means is that early in childhood, we had to make compromises in order to survive. We had to suppress parts of ourselves and deny who we really are in order to be accepted by others, in order to be attached. In childhood, we have no choice in the matter. Children's attachments are not negotiable. They can't survive without them. Then we get into this pattern where all our lives, we're still sacrificing our authentic selves for the sake of being liked and accepted and so on. At a certain point as an adult, we have to revisit that dynamic and ask ourselves, now what do I really want? Do I want to be authentic or do I want to be attached? Ideally, we can have both. But if we can't, which would you rather have? And I always say to people, suffering is not optional in a certain sense. The question is, what kind of suffering would we want? Do you want the suffering of being ourselves and perhaps some people not liking that? Or do we want the suffering that comes from not being ourselves? And then our bodies have to give us all these terrible signals to wake us up. And I think that's where our work is really so confluent, is that we just want people to be themselves. And that's where health is. And that's where the health is. Yeah. Anything else? And the body will manifest that, will express that, will communicate that. Exactly. Ultimately, I think we're teaching people to really listen to their bodies and not to see disease or symptoms simply as problems that we want to go. I'm not Again, I'm not recommending, you're not recommending migraines or stomach aches or diarrhea or multiple sclerosis as a way of waking up. But my God, when those things show up, you can learn. And I think both you and I have found that when people learn from them, they can heal. And there's so much healing that is available, probably so much more than what they've realized. Exactly. Thank you.
Thank you. I think we've come to the end of our time now, isn't it? Or I've forgotten how much time we had for this. Yeah, we we said an hour and we're coming up on that hour. Oh, we said an hour. Okay, great. Yeah. All right. Wonderful. So we have a few more minutes. I'm just trying to think. What have we not covered? Yeah. Is there anybody that's beyond help? Is anybody so hurt that they can't be helped? I don't think so. What do you think? Oh, that's a great question. And my line is that as long as you're still breathing and, and your nervous system is still alive and yeah. conscious, yeah. then there's all there's always a connection that can be made. And with a connection, there's always healing and expansion that happens. Now I've seen that happen, and I talk about this in this book. I used to work in palliative care. People that were terminally ill and they were not gonna live. Now there are, by the way, there's interesting examples that have been studied by people that both you and I know of people that are given terminal diagnoses and then all of a sudden they get better and the illness goes away and the doctors say, what the hell happened? Well, what happened is that there's a powerful transformation that happened. But even with people with terminal illness, I've seen expansion where they weren't going to live longer or much longer, but how they lived and who they were. And this is what, again, I don't recommend this, but maybe you've seen it, but I've seen it. When people say, doctor, this disease that's taking my life is the best thing that ever happened to me. And not because I want to die, but because I connected with myself and that's more precious than anything else. Have you seen that? Have people said that to you? Yes, I've seen that. I've seen that a lot. And for me in those moments, of course, I'm right there with that person. And then it also makes me think of all the other people. And let's not wait until that point to realize that the most important thing is for us to live authentically and even figure out what that means. Exactly. Because again, for most people who've lived since childhood to a degree disconnected in order to protect themselves at that time, they don't even know what authenticity is. Yeah. They don't even know that they're disconnected half of the time, Gobber. <laughs> no, I didn't used to know. I didn't used to know. The other day I was at a social event and this very high functioning businesswoman who runs a major business in Atlanta, Georgia. So from mm. the from everyone else's perspective, she's got it all. She's got yeah. it all and she is on top <clears throat> of her game. And when she found out what I did, she told me like, oh. I need your help so much. I protect my trauma. And I said, oh, that's an interesting phrase. You protect your trauma. That means to me that it's pretty stuffed down there. It's pretty buried and you've got your guards up. And how much energy must that take you to keep that trauma well protected? If you didn't need to do that and you could use that energy for other things, what would change for you? You know what she said? She said, I would be unstoppable. And imagine, right? Like she's at that level where other people already think that she's unstoppable. And yet she can sense in herself, no, there is another level to me. There's another level of living life. And that's what I want everyone else to tap into long before they get sick, long before they they get to a terminal disease is there is this whole other level of being alive. That we don't, have, we don't, we, yeah, we don't have to wait. We don't have to wait for the disease to wake us up. That's right. the whole. Point. But <laughs> but this wait. person that you met, but this person that you mentioned, I would venture to say, 
She might be unstoppable, but if she keeps it up, her body's going to punish her at some point. Absolutely. And I think both you and I have seen, I've seen people really, by all the standards of the world, they're major successes. I've worked with such people. Recently, I let a retreat. The jewelry in the room would have bought, I don't know how many mansions, and people were just miserable in their lives and internally incredibly successful good looking by every measure of achievement out there in the world i told you at the beginning of our, before we went online here that i just took a two-week sabbatical from the, the digital world no emails no cell phones no internet no youtube no nothing and i tell you I found out, I knew this intellectually, but I really experienced it. And I hope to hold on to this. Reality is not out there. Just at least don't define yourself by the reality out there. It doesn't matter what you've got out there. If here it's not coordinated, if it's not grounded, if your nervous system is not aligned with your gut, if your immune system is not aligned with your emotions, if your emotions are not aligned with your relationships, if your relationships are not aligned with who you need to be in the world, who you really are, you're going to suffer. There's a, quite a lesson for me is not to put the emphasis on what's going on out there, but, but, but it, it all begins here. It all comes down to the internal experience. Yeah. And can we even connect to that? Yeah. And if we haven't done that yet, that's where we need to start. Which I think to go back to your 21-day program, I think that's really the essence of it, isn't it? It is. That's where I start everyone, even before lab work and the biology work now, because that's how important I have seen it is for setting the foundation for changing a person's health symptoms and, of course, their life and relationships as well. So, doctor, do you have a practice yourself that you follow in your personal life? Most definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. This is, I don't know what your experience has been, but my experience has been, this isn't something where you can just do it once and then never have to do it again. This right. is a, a daily, for me, it's, I don't want to use the word practice, It's. but I suppose I could. It's just, this is how I live my life now. And and now when I disconnect from myself, I feel it because it's yeah. so different than what I have become used to, which is being embodied, being connected and being attuned and listening and being in curiosity. And so when I lose that, and usually it's always because I'm responding to something in my external environment and I yeah. lose that disconnect, like I, I feel it and it actually causes me stress. And so that's yeah. my cue. It's like, oh. I need to step away. I need to go reconnect with myself first. So for me, it's become just so much of how I live every day, how I live life now, which is so different than all of how I lived life before until I did this work. Yeah. This two-week sabbatical was really great to bring that home to me as well. And uh, I've not been so good at living what I teach. I'm much better at teaching than living uh, in some ways. And <laughs> it's happened to me that 
some people, a lot of people say to me, I read your book and it changed my life. And I thought, I said to myself, maybe I should read it myself. But anyway, I'm beginning, I'm committed now. I'm actually committed to living what I teach. Yeah. And, and for me, I think because of the life experiences that I've had first with Miguel, then with my own health, yeah, I, I teach what I live. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And it's great to connect with you again. And that brings us to the end of this podcast episode with Gabra Mate. What did you get out of it? What new insights did you hear? I would love to hear from you and hear what you got out of it and your new insights. I have all that on the webpage for this podcast episode. And so whatever platform you are listening on, you can find the link to the webpage where you can drop me a comment about this episode. In the show notes, I will also include my guide to share with you the exact sequence of somatic exercises that I guide people through in the 21-day journey. It's really helpful to know that it's not just a random order of exercises. It's a very specific sequence because they are specific. It's a specific sequence of experiences that we need to create for our body or help our clients create for their body so that we are opening up in a safe way. So I will have that guide called the Essential Sequence Guide that will show you the exact sequence of somatic exercises that I guide people through in the 21-day journey. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Biology of Trauma podcast. I am your host, Dr. Amy, where I bring you the practical information you need for tools for addressing stored trauma in the body. The theory is nice, the studies are great, but I needed answers and solutions, and I expect you want answers, practical tools, and solutions as well. In fact, if you are a professional, I will also include in the show notes my latest guide that I've created, which is the 15 easiest practical biology of trauma tools to incorporate for your clients or for yourself without having to take all of the biology of trauma professional certificate training. I've got the training broken up into six different modules after that foundational module, but I've pulled out the 15 easiest tools in order for you to be able to get started with something. Until next episode... I am sending you lots of love. Thank you for joining me today. If you enjoyed today's show, be sure to subscribe. We definitely will learn, laugh, and sometimes cry together on this healing journey. And you won't want to miss an episode. Give my podcast five stars, share it with a friend or colleague. If you felt an impact as it truly helps get the word out and breaking the paradigm of how we do trauma work. I look forward to seeing you back here next week. Until then, this is your host, Dr. Amy. Sending you lots of love.